Well, good morning, ABC. It's a joy to be with you. Um, as I was looking at this very full stage, um, it brought to mind what Paul said to the Corinthians when they were talking about the super apostles, as he, as he calls them, um, that had these letters of recommendation and these resumes, if you will, of all the speaking engagements they've had and how they are, there's prowess. And he says to the Corinthians, he says, you are my letter. You are my joy and my crown. And I just cannot, I couldn't help but think as I was looking at the stage, Kyle Bryant, you have the ability to say to these students and to the others, you are my letter of recommendation. You are my joy and my crown. And so Kyle, thank you for your faithfulness um, to serve our college ministry. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And if you didn't notice, we cut some songs today um, so that I could preach. Um, so uh, it, is a, it is a joy to get to be back up here with you, though. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, if you've not already opened your Bibles there, you may do so now. Um, and I just want to remind us, this is now the third week um, of what will be four weeks. Kyle will finish up this series in this chapter next week. Um, and so Easter began this series. Easter is a time we always consider the resurrection. We, we look at that um, almost exclusively on that day. That is where our, our focus is pointed. But it, resurrection is maybe the most central truth of the Christian life. And so it is something that we thought needed more focus um, for a few extra weeks. And so we looked at that first week, verses one through 11, um, talked about the, the reality of the resurrection. This is not some, some pipe dream, some wish. This is a historical fact um, that we can either believe or we can reject. And then last week, Kyle did a phenomenal job walking through the reason for the resurrection, why it is a hope, why looking to Christ and his resurrection gives us the hope of resurrection. And this week, we're going to look in just a little bit more about what is a resurrected body going to look like. And so as we do that, um, if you haven't listened to those first two messages, I would highly encourage you to go back, listen to those, um, and, or, or watch them online. Um, it will provide a, a very good context for the, the sermon today. But for today, we're going to pick up in verse 35, um, and we're going to read through verse 49. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, and star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. 
the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Give us greater grasp and greater longing for what you have prepared for us. An inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for us with Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to set our hearts on that and help us then to live in a way in this life that sets, its, sets our hearts on the life to come. We praise things in your name, amen. So throughout human existence, there have been a few things that prove true over and over again. Um, things like gravity, what goes up must come down, right? Um, the fact that human lungs um, don't do so well breathing in water, okay? Um, the fact that women are always right. Um, except for Eve, just bear that in mind, okay, ladies? And that death is a certainty. And because death is a certainty, coming back from the dead has always seemed to be a little far-fetched. Um, cultures throughout history have, have thought so. Um, and this has therefore given rise to many questions throughout the millennia, um, and even, to some extent, maybe even an obsession and a fascination with this idea. Um, Hollywood and pop culture have certainly taken it and run with it, um, as you see in examples like Thriller, by Michael Jackson in its, movie, its music video, or perhaps AMC's hit show, The Walking Dead, or any other myriad of these zombie movies, this idea of what would it be like if bodies got up and started moving around again after they were dead? Not usually a great picture. And that was kind of the thought of the Greek minds of, the, of Paul's day as well. Um, but the way that Christianity describes the dead being raised is something that is completely and incredibly unique. Um, and this has also, again, led to no shortage of questions and confusion throughout the years. Prior to Christianity, Judaism was actually the only religion that believed there would be a bodily resurrection one day. It's the only religion um, that had, was at that time believing such a thing. And we know this from verses like Matthew 22, verse 23, that even some of the Jews, such as the Sadducees, didn't actually believe there would be a bodily resurrection. And Paul was certainly not unaware of this as um, a hang-up that many people had during that time. According to Acts 17 and 18, um, just before his trip to Corinth, Paul went to Athens um, on his second missionary journey, and he debated there in the Areopagus with these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers and I'm sure others there. Um, and the point at which they, these pagan philosophers began to write Paul off as a loon was when? When he mentions the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> this guy, right? They, 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 they wrote him off. It was no longer credible 
Um, they were no longer interested for the most part. But some said, we'll hear you again on this. This is some foreign thing we've never heard. The, the point remains that the resurrection of the dead was just not something that most people thought was going to happen. Death is natural. And resurrection, therefore, is perhaps the embodiment of supernatural. And this is why Paul is going to spend the majority of the time in this passage today responding to this first pair of questions that he anticipates would be raised um, about the dead being raised. So first, let's look at in our outline an objection to resurrection. In verse 35, Paul begins by saying, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Maybe some of you can relate to that, that, those questions. Maybe you've stayed up at night thinking about, what, what will this be like? I mean, yeah, but I, 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 what about this and, and that? Maybe, maybe those have been questions. What will we look like in heaven? How old will we be? Will your hair be the color you always wished it was? Will you be taller? Will you be more muscular? What will it be like? Or perhaps you've wondered, like I have, how every person who has ever existed throughout time will one day stand alive bodily before the throne of God all at the same time. Like, is there room for that on the earth? Like, I don't know. Or some people are gonna be like standing on water or, or like, you know, on this. What, what's gonna happen? How is that possible? And so when pondering something as mysterious as the bodily resurrection of all people throughout time, these questions are understandable, right? We, we shouldn't be surprised by these questions. And yet Paul seems to not be very patient or understanding when it comes to answering these questions. As we see in verse 36, Paul says, you foolish person. Literally just says, you fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. See, Paul doesn't see these questions as innocent or genuine, um, rather, they, are, they come from this influence of pagan philosophy that Paul was very familiar with. Um, he had encountered it in Athens, he encountered it in many other places. Pagan philosophy had infiltrated the thought, even as we see that happening today in Christian thought and in the church. Um, and like the attempts of the scribes and Pharisees to entrap Jesus, um, the one who would ask this question um, asked with the goal of embarrassing and discrediting not of understanding. The fool asking assumed he already knew that the resurrection could not happen rather than seeking to know how it would happen. Say it again. This fool Paul is addressing assumed he already knew that the resurrection could not happen rather than seeking to know how it would happen. And to show the lack of understanding that anyone who would ask such a question in such a manner Paul gives a very common and yet profound illustration from nature. Paul shows in three significant ways how resurrection is similar to the planting and growing of crops. Something that everyone at that time, and surely even today, even more so, we can wrap our minds around. First, they are similar in that both the body and the seed die. They must die. When a seed is planted in the ground, it decomposes. It literally dies and dissolves. It must die as a seed in order to live as a plant. Plain and simple. And Jesus uses the same picture in John 12, verse 24, when he declares, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Before Jesus could bear the fruit of eternal life and salvation for us, he had to die. Likewise, we too must die in order to take possession of the fruit of his resurrection or to bear fruit in the service of him in our lives. Death comes first, but it is then followed by new, more abundant life. Verse 37 teaches us that secondly then, for both crops growing and bodies being resurrected, the final form, not only only does the first form die, but the final form is different from the original form. A single grain of wheat and a fully grown wheat plant are different in many ways. This is very observable. You put it in the ground, it's little. It grows up, it's big. There's more of it. It it multiplies, it grows. It's different in its form and its shape and its size in so many ways. But looking again to the example of Jesus, since again, he is the only example, as we'll talk about more, that we have of this, we see that what what came out of the grave when he was resurrected was drastically different from what was placed into the grave. According to the gospel accounts, which can be proven, by the way, on many levels to be trustworthy and to not be exaggerated, the resurrected Jesus was no longer limited by time, space, and material substance. During his appearances, after his resurrection, Jesus vanished, Luke 24 tells us, before people's eyes. He then, in John 20, appears in a locked room without opening the door. How does he do this? Surely Jesus did many miraculous things while before his crucifixion, but not these things. His new body was very different from his old body. So not only does it, must it die, not only is it different, but thirdly, like growing plants, there is still continuity between the old body and the new. According to verse 38, we see this. And it, when a seed germinates and sprouts, um, it is radically different from its start, uh, for how it started as a seed, as we've said, it's still the same plant. You don't plant wheat and get barley. You don't plant oats and get corn. You plant wheat and get wheat. You plant corn and get corn. There's continuity there. The identity of the organism continues throughout from seed to plant. The same can be observed from the resurrected Jesus. After being raised from the dead, Jesus was not recognizable to the people he had been closest to prior to his death. Mary Magdalene in the garden didn't recognize him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. So also as believers, I'm sorry, they were only able to recognize him, we should say, though once he revealed himself to them. And at that point, they were fully able to see that it was in fact the Lord. Peter on the seashore is a great example of this in John chapter 21, where he says, have you caught any fish? No. Throw your net's on the other side. And the catch was too big. And Peter looked and he said, it's the Lord. He's done it before. I know it is him. When he revealed himself to them, he was fully recognizable. So also as believers, our resurrected bodies will maintain a certain continuity with our current bodies. They will die and they will change, but it will still be our bodies. Martin Luther said, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. 
Surely this is what Paul has in mind here, that the resurrection is completely plausible. Though many would deny it or scoff at it, it is completely plausible because it happens continuously in plants. So surely it is not too difficult to believe that the God who has caused this to happen over and over and over again through the millennia could not also do it with men and women who he has made in his image. We should not be so quick to doubt. But Paul goes on then to expand on this point and to describe bodily form in resurrection. This is point three of our outline. In verse 39, Paul says, not all flesh is the same. And he's highlighting here the infinite creativity of God. And it can already be observed in the amazing variety of earthly bodies that we see in creation. To this day, scientists are still discovering species of plants and animals. And while some may argue this is evolution, we'll see here in just a second that this is actually contrary in every way to evolution. Now, you may remember from biology that amino acids are the building blocks of life. Anybody remember that? I know you do. Never mind. Um, But did you know that more than 600 octadecillion different combinations of amino acids exist? Now, if you're not sure what I just said or think that I just made up a word, um, an octadecillion, octadecillion, is 10 to the 108th power. So the number that we're talking about would be 600 with another 108 zeros behind it and also 34 commas. Every plant and animal species has its own pattern of amino acids. And each individual plant and animal within its species has a, its own unique grouping of those amino acids. That means that no two palm trees, no two tulips, no two elephants, sparrows, alligators, or human beings, not even identical twins, are exactly alike. Yet each is completely identified at the same time within its own species or kind. Those two facts alone make one of the strongest scientific evidences against evolution. The biological codes are binding and unique. There is no repeatable or demonstrable scientific proof that one form of life has ever changed or could change into another. They are all specifically unique by the creative design and infinite ability of our God. Is this not what Jesus spoke of when he told the Pharisees that if the people did not declare, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that the very stones would cry out? Is it not what God answers Job when he interrogates him regarding the creativity and the majesty that he, the Lord himself, had given to the mountain goat and the horse and the eagle and to Leviathan, who, by the way, was a fire-breathing dragon? Don't believe me? Go to Job 41 and look it up. And then we'll talk. The Lord's creativity is infinite. Can the God who transforms the caterpillar into the butterfly not transform our mortal bodies into whatever he desires? Is anything too hard for our God? 
If this can be seen, Paul goes on to say, even in a greater extent when comparing the heavenly bodies to those that are earthly, which obviously differ greatly in form, in nature, and in size, if you weren't aware. We don't have a moon sitting on our, our planet anywhere, um, nor could the sun come in contact with it. But there's still diversity among even the celestial bodies. Stars produce light while planets and moons reflect it. Yet no two stars, moons, or planets are the same. They're all different and unique. And to human knowledge, Earth is the only planet in existence that can sustain life as we know it. Every star is unique. Every planet is unique. Every plant, every animal, every human being is perfectly unique according to the infinite creative genius of God. And Paul says in the first part of verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. Our resurrection bodies will have continually with our resurrection will continually, will have, I'm sorry, continuity with our earthly bodies, but they will also differ just as radically as the celestial bodies in heaven differ from the earthly. And they will be as individually unique as anything that has already existed in creation. But having given this 30,000 foot, and I would say higher, because we've been talking about planets and stars and such, um, Paul now gives us a, a little bit more on the ground view of the resurrection body. He zooms in on in the second part of verse 42. And here he's going to give us four contrasts that delineate the old body and the new. First, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. This is seen also in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 20, when it says, one of the, which is one of the many verses in scripture that point to this perishable nature of our bodies. It says, all go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. This is one of the tragic results of the fall. That from the, the, from the point that sin entered the world, human beings were subjected to physical death. Our bodies give out. They grow tired and weak and perish. Yet, our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. They will know no sickness, decay, destruction, or death. But secondly, Paul says, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, sin has greatly impaired the ability of human beings to serve and to please God. Instead, we dishonor God by not fully representing him in creation, by not fully or rightly utilizing the resources he has given us in creation, and by misusing and abusing our bodies that he has given us to serve and to honor him. We dishonor God and we dishonor our bodies. But our imperfect and dishonorable bodies will one day be raised, Paul says, in glory. And they will be capable of living for all eternity to their full potential and service and honor to the Lord in the way that he is worthy of. But thirdly, Paul says, it is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. For those of you who have um, already made it out of your 20s, you've probably at least begun to realize that your body ain't what it used to be. Um, our bodies are both weak in physical strength and endurance, 
but also in our ability to resist harm and disease. Um, just in case you slept through 2020 and the coronavirus. These earthly temples, they're fragile and they're temporary. Like an old house <laughs> on HGTV, um, a home renovation type show, um, that house, those houses that are full of rot and decay and seem to be hopeless at times. But here's the thing. This can point to us to a great truth because the one who is renovating us has more ability and creativity than Chip and Joanna Gaines. And his budget is limitless because the price of our redemption was his own broken body and shed blood that he has gladly given to make us new. We are not told what the power of our new bodies will be like, but it will be immeasurable and unrecognizable compared to what we have now. This leads us to the fourth contrast, that it is sown a natural body and is raised a spiritual body. As our bodies exist now, um, we are strictly natural. Our heart pumps blood, our lungs breathe in oxygen and exhale CO2. Um, they function, our, our brain fires limitless, it seems, synapses that, would, that baffle even the greatest um, of, of scientists um, and, and are not to be compared with even the most miraculous and incredible supercomputers that exist today. And so as we, though, look at these things, our physical bodies are still limited to the physical realm to live and function within it. So what does Paul mean when he refers to a spiritual body? Well, from the second half of verse 44, um, we see that it says he's certainly not meaning something that is less than a physical body. He's actually making an argument here from the lesser to the greater. If our bodies can be empowered in a completely natural way by the power of God, then even more so can they be empowered in a spiritual way by God who is spirit. Paul would later write to the same Corinthian believers, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So then our bodies will be transformed so that in spirit and in body, we will be perfectly suited for life in the presence of God. As Kyle pointed out to us last week, does it not make sense that if God made us to be in a physical, spiritual union, that he would then not allow sin to destroy that? Would God not instead redeem and restore this union in an even greater way, rather than just merely removing us from a corrupted physical existence? No, Christ has come to redeem us. And if Christ has not redeemed and restored the physical by his death and resurrection, then sin and death have not been defeated. They've only been circumvented. But we know that Christ is triumphant over them. Praise be to God, as Philippians 3.21 tells us, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Sin and death answer to Christ. This brings us then to our last section today, the prototype of the resurrection. In verse 45, Paul continues his line of thinking when he writes, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Paul is quoting from Genesis 2, 7 here, where the Lord God forms the first man from the dust of the earth and then breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. The contrast Paul goes on to draw between the first Adam and Jesus, the last Adam, looks back to verses 21 and 22 from last week that Kyle preached from, and also Romans 5, 12 to 19. In both of these passages, both 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5, Adam and Christ are referred to in a theological term that's not mentioned here, but what has been called a corporate head. Adam is the head that provides sin and death to all who follow in in his lineage. So Christ also is the head that provides righteousness and life to all who follow in his lineage. In our passage today, Adam is the natural man of dust, while Christ is the spiritual man of heaven. So what this means for us, Paul says in verses 48 through 49, is as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So if we combine all these verses together, we could say that just as sin and death has been passed from the man of dust to all who are like him in the flesh, so much more will righteousness and life be passed from the man of heaven to those of us who are made like him by faith. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 tells us. That means if we want to get an idea of our, what our resurrected bodies will be like, we must look to the one and only one who has a resurrected body, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 6, 9 tells us that we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And since Romans 8, 29 then goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Since we know this, we can have assurance that we will never die again once we have received our new bodies. Since in Christ, these new bodies are not a hope, not a wish, but a certainty, even now, we can rejoice that death no longer has dominion over us since Christ has already defeated death on our behalf. We don't have to be certain about every facet and characteristic of our resurrection bodies to be certain that they await us who find our final headship in the last Adam. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has planned for those who love him. What awaits us is beyond our current senses or imagination. Yet the beloved disciple writes in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when we, he appears, we shall be like him because we, will see, we shall see him 
as he is. So what does this have to say to us today? You, you told us, okay, Jared, Paul's painted a picture for us. He's used nature. He's used all these things. But what does that have to tell us today? Well, today, many people think of heaven only in terms of a, a spiritual existence apart from anything physical. I would say this is the case for even many Christians today. And though any form of existence in God's presence would be glorious and beyond imagination, an eternity without the physical honestly leaves much to be desired. I believe this is this reason that many people have grown dull in their longing for what's to come. I believe it's why we don't take time to consider what awaits us in the presence of God. It doesn't seem compelling. It's this ethereal existence where we're, flo- what? what is compelling about that? What, what stirs our soul to long for that? Are only our spirit, our soul, and not our bodies redeemable by the Lord? In Mark 2, 17, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Until we face the reality that we are sinners, we don't see our need for a savior. And until we face the reality that our bodies are broken, flawed, weak, and perishable, we won't see the need for the great physician to provide us a new one. It's not uncommon today for people to make their bodies idols. Their entire life is centered around serving them. It's also not uncommon for people to abuse their bodies because they hate the way that they look. But no matter how much you love or loathe your body, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that through faith in him, something better awaits you. I'm guessing that many of you here today feel and are keenly aware of the fact um, that your body is broken and flawed, that you suffer in some way or another. And I'd bet that whether for a brief moment or for a lifetime, every one of us has experienced the bad news that our natural bodies are perishable, dishonored, and weak. But God's word says from start to finish, for the spiritual and for the physical, the gospel is good news. The promise of the resurrected body is the hope for the person with terminal cancer, for the deaf and the blind, for the one confined to a wheelchair, for the, those with an eating disorder, for the one with dementia, for the one with same-sex attraction, for the one with gender dysphoria, for the one idolizing his or her appearance, for the alcoholic, for the drug addict, for the sexually abused, and for every other person whose mortal body is weakened and disordered by sin. This is our hope. Not an ethereal existence, a resurrected, perfect body that will exist forever in the presence of God. The gospel is good news. It is the evangel, not the evasion. 
Christ did not physically take on human flesh and become our sin on the cross to then be raised and retreat with his people back into a non-physical existence. Christ became the physical to destroy sin and death's power over the physical. No longer does our physical future belong to death. It belongs to the Redeemer. And his word for all who are tired and who are broken and who are weak is come to me. I will give you rest. So, beloved, do not give in to the distortion and the weakness of your flesh that has been tainted by sin. It does not get the final word if you belong to Christ. Hold on, be steadfast. As we consider this, we should consider what Paul says, that I discipline my body in this life so that having run and having preached that I don't disqualify myself, that sin does not reign over me anymore, that all things may be lawful for me, but not all things are profitable, that we don't set our hope on what this body can achieve, but what is infinitely possible in the body that is yet to come. Christ calls us to turn away literally from death and to come to him for life. True, eternal, perfect life that is impossible for our minds to imagine, but not impossible for our God to deliver. So today, if you find yourself longing, know that this world cannot satisfy it. If you find yourself hurting, there is a healer. If you find yourself discouraged, there is one who has infinite joy. Not in some out-of-body experience, but in a body that will be made like his. Never to see death, suffering, corruption, or decay. We will be with him and we will be like him. If you've never placed your hope in that Savior, know that today (laughs) he says, come, find rest for your soul and hope for your resurrected body in me. And if today you are a believer who is struggling to find that hope, be reminded that this body isn't the end, that this life is not the end as something glorious beyond all compare, beyond all thought and imagination awaits for us who know Christ. That it is secure with him. As Colossians 3 tells us, we should set our minds above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because it's secure in a place where nothing of this world can touch it. Romans 8 reminds us that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, all you who may feel hopeless, come today, come to the altar, come speak with me, I'll be down front and find hope, not only for this life, but for the one that is to come, that your heart may be set on that. Thanks be to God for his promise, his word that he will surely fulfill. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
for the promise, not just that our spirits and our souls and our minds will be redeemed, God, but that our bodies, we can have full assurance, as certain as anything in creation, will be restored and redeemed by your power, enlivened not by natural means, though that is from your power, but by spiritual means, never to die, never to decay, never to see corruption. Lord, teach our hearts to long for greater things such as these. Teach us, Lord, to find hope in the midst of despair, joy in the midst of sorrow, because, God, your word proves true. God, draw people to yourself today for your glory and for our eternal good. Amen.